If Jesus were in Plainfield this morning, I wonder where we'd find him. I don't know, maybe we'd find him at McDonald's having breakfast with some buddies. Maybe he'd be the designated driver for some stragglers who partied a little too hard last night. Or maybe, maybe he'd be here with us in church this morning. That'd be cool. But I don't know. You see, Jesus often got himself in trouble by being in places where other people didn't think he should be with people that they didn't think he should be with. Open your Bibles with me to Luke 15 this morning. Luke chapter 15. The most persistent accusation against Jesus during his ministry was this. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Just notice the first two verses here in Luke 15, if you've got your Bibles open. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So notice the scene here. Who's the inner crowd? Who are the people who are close to Jesus? It's the rowdy people. The rowdy people are the inner crowd. It says they were all gathering around Jesus. In other words, this wasn't just a one-time deal. This was a common characteristic of Jesus' ministry. These kinds of messy people loved hanging out with Jesus. And he welcomed them. And he accepted them. He loved it. Now, this may not seem like a big deal to us today, but Jesus hanging out and eating with tax collectors and sinners was scandalous. And now when we think of tax collectors in the Bible, we think of Zacchaeus, right? Who was a wee little man and a wee little man was he and he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And we were told the tax collectors were these people who were supposed to take $20 from you, but really they took $30 from you because they were greedy and they wanted to get rich. Well, that's true, but it's also more than that. You see, Jesus' little tax collector friends were calloused traitors. At this point in world history, the Roman Empire is close to the peak of its power. And Rome ruled their empire with a bloody iron fist. When Rome would conquer a city, they would take hundreds or thousands of the men and women and children of that city, and they would strip them nude, and they would crucify them along the road leading into the city for miles and miles, so that anyone who was going to or from that city would have those crucifixions, that image, those smells burned into their minds as a message. Don't mess with Rome. And in order for Rome to be able to maintain law and order over their massive empire, they needed a massive army. And in order to fund their massive army, they needed massive amounts of money. And in order to get that money, they levied taxes on the people. So Zacchaeus and all of Jesus' little tax collector friends were these Israelites who betrayed their country and raised funds for the brutal army that had taken over their land and killed thousands of their countrymen. This would be like you living next door to somebody who had legally funded the murder of your family. This would be like Jesus hanging out with Americans who defected to the Middle East and joined Al-Qaeda. These are the tax collectors. And then there's the sinners. Well, we're all sinners, right? But in the Jewish mindset, sinners was this separate, lowly class of people. These degenerate, unrepentant people, like prostitutes and like slave traders. Or people who they thought were judged by God because they had some kind of deformity or disease or handicap. 
And these tax collectors and sinners, they they were social outcasts. They'd been told from the beginning, constantly reminded that God had judged them. That they were not allowed to get near everybody else at the synagogue. That they were not allowed to hear God's word being read. That they were not allowed to make sacrifices for their sin. That they were not allowed to be near moral, middle-class, God-fearing, self-respecting Jews. And yet here these people are with Jesus. We see it throughout his ministry. We see Jesus talking to a woman. Scandalous. And he's talking to a Samaritan woman. They hated the Samaritans. He was talking to a loose Samaritan woman. And he loved her like no one ever had. We see a prostitute come and fall at Jesus' feet and anoint his feet. And she wipes them with her hair. And Jesus allows it. We see Jesus touching dead people. And touching those who are blind and lamed and diseased and deformed. And we see Jesus saying, today you will be with me in paradise. But he doesn't say it to the clergy or to the people with great church attendance. He says it to a crucified criminal who deserved nothing except the electric chair. Jesus loves hanging out with messy people. And we should too. Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. He said, it's not not the healthy people who need a doctor, but the sick. That's why he came. And we believe that the Jesus that we see in the Bible is still doing the same things today that he was then. The things we read about in the Gospels, Jesus is doing now through his church, his body, here on earth. So Jesus still saves the lost. Jesus is still the Savior who hangs out on the wrong side of town. He's still the friend of sinners who goes across the tracks to find people to bring into his kingdom. And that's hard for us. Because by nature, we like to build up these walls to keep outsiders where they belong. Outside. (laughs) Because they smell like that, they look like that, they dress like that, they talk like that, they live over there, go to that place, act that way, have that reputation. Keep them outside. A few years ago, I had the privilege of going to California with my dad, and we went to this church in Los Angeles that rocked my world. I remember the church service vividly. We walked in the building, and the diversity just smacked you in the face. I I mean, there were African Americans and Hispanics and Asians and Caucasians and everything in between. There were gray-haired men dressed to the nines, and there were these young adults looking like thugs in their baggy pants. There were skinny jeans. There were cowboys. There was every kind of style you could imagine. It was like you took every single American subculture, you threw it in a blender, and out popped the church. And yet, as different as they all were, there they were, sitting in the same rows, singing the same songs to the same God in whose image they were all made. And I remember walking into that church service and just thinking, wow, this looks like heaven. You see, if you're still avoiding people who are different than you, people whom you think are a little bit weird, people you think are a little bit dirty, the outsiders, you know, the people from the other side of the tracks, if that's you, well then, hate to break it to you, but heaven's probably not going to be much fun for you. (laughs) Because this Jesus that we follow hangs out with a rowdy crowd. If Jesus were in Plainfield this morning, I wonder where we'd find him. 
When we're reading the Bible, it's important not just to yank verses out indiscriminately and make them mean whatever we want them to mean, right? Uh, it's shocking, but Bible verses were not an, uh, you know, initially 140-character tweets for you to put on social media. They actually came in a context. They came as part of a story or part of a letter that was written from a certain person to another person. So it's important for us to look at that overarching context as we read individual Bible verses to find out what they really mean. Context is key is one way to say it. Say that with me. Say context is key. Context is key. Good job. Well done. Okay, so let's look at the context here. We're in Luke chapter 15, but let's look at Luke 14 here for a second. What happens right before this? Well, in Luke 14, Jesus tells some stories to some Pharisees and to a large crowd, and he invites them to follow him by saying, in the last verse of Luke 14, 35, he says this. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear. That's how Luke 14 ends. Well, look how Luke 15 begins, verse 1. You see it there in your Bibles. Who's hearing Jesus there in Luke 15, 1? It says the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So it's the tax collectors and the sinners who are listening to him. But notice who's on the fringe. It's the Pharisees. They're the ones standing outside, the outer crowd who didn't think they needed to hear what Jesus had to say. They were the ones who weren't close to him. They were the ones mumbling and grumbling and muttering about the riffraff that Jesus was hanging out with. So Jesus stops and he looks at the outer crowd, these religious people. They were the ones who weren't close to Jesus. And Jesus tells them these three parables, three stories that's what we're going to be looking at for the next four weeks. And these parables in Luke 15 that we're studying, they aren't primarily aimed at the tax collectors and the sinners. They're aimed at the grumbling Pharisees. So who were these Pharisees? Well, we've been taught about the Pharisees, right? They were Jesus' most common adversary. And every time we see them come on the scenes in the Gospels, we want to boo because we know that those are the evil bad guys. They're the ones wearing black hats, right? Well... Not really. It's actually more than that. That's just not fair, you see. Come on. Courtesy laugh. Thank you. <laughs> you see, actually, the Pharisees, they started out good. They didn't start out bad. They were living in a land of pagan influences, a land of people who'd begun to neglect God's word. So the Pharisees started as this middle-class movement of the working man. These were just average people who wanted to take God's word seriously and get back to holiness and obedience. And that's a good thing. Sounds kind of like what we want to do. So what went wrong with the Pharisees? I think they got some of their values a little warped. Three things. I think first, they valued preservation over pursuit. Preservation over pursuit. Now again, to the Pharisees' credit, they took holiness seriously. They wanted to obey and follow how they thought God wanted them to live. They wanted to remain pure and undefiled by the world. Good for them. But eventually, that evolved into a preservation kind of mindset where it became us against the world. And if we're not careful, that can happen here in the church, too, where the church can become our fortress, and we run inside, and we shut the doors really quick to protect ourselves from the evil influences of the ungodly world, and if anything threatens our way of doing religion, if the doors of the church actually open, and messy people come in and threaten how we like to do things, then we get all shook up. It's not how we're used to it, and we have to protect our haven of holiness It's shocking to me, and it's convicting how the Pharisees, the church people, 
got it so wrong. I mean, these were people who studied and obeyed scripture. They worshiped faithfully. They gathered regularly. They prayed consistently. These were people who were looked up at in their society as the religious heroes. These were the good guys of their culture. These people were the moral authority that you could look up to. These were the upstanding citizens, the righteous and godly ones. And yet, they completely missed the heart of God. Because while the Pharisees were scheming how to keep their religion clean and unthreatened and under their control, God was out seeking and saving the lost. And that's what ultimately led to the Pharisees killing Jesus. was this preservation over pursuit kind of mindset. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 21 to them, he said, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Wow. So they valued preservation over pursuit. Secondly, they valued rule-keeping over relationship. Now, you got to understand, the Pharisees are like these varsity-level believers, right? They don't smoke, drink, chew, or go with girls who do. They have like nine Christian bumper stickers on their chariots. They follow the Dave Ramsey budget. They don't teach their kids about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. They definitely don't watch R-rated movies. They only listen to Hebrew music, okay? These guys had it going on. But hear me, church. Christianity is not about keeping a list of rules. Christianity is not some kind of checklist to make sure that you have the right opinions about capital punishment and gun control and the legalization of marijuana and homeschooling and what you can or can't eat or making sure you tithe exactly 10% to your local church or have your little 15-minute quiet time every morning. Those things are fine and good. But that's not Christianity. Christianity is a relationship with the living God. And when the Pharisees got it wrong is when they took God's laws. Because God does have laws and rules that we are meant to follow, that are meant to lead us to a relationship with him. And those are good and fine things that we are called to follow. And yet they took those laws and they kind of built a wall around them, these traditions of how they thought those laws absolutely had to be acted out. And so they took their traditions and their opinions and they put them on the same level as God's law. And they enforced people to follow not just God's rules, but also their traditions and their opinions. And that's where they got it wrong. You see, when we take our idea of what we think Christianity should look like, our idea of worship, our idea of how a Christian has to dress or talk or act, and we begin to enforce it on other people, that's when we become a Pharisee. We become a Pharisee when we see somebody else's actions and we immediately judge their motives. Where we see the external of somebody and we immediately assume that we know their heart behind it. That's pharisaical. We might say, oh, oh, sure, absolutely, those messy people can come in our church. We'd love for them to become Christians as long as they dress and look and act just like us and you know, clean up their act a little bit. No, 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 no. God catches the fish before he cleans them. And we're called to be fishers of men. And God does clean the fish. We are called to grow in holiness and right living in accordance with the word of God. But Christianity is not a list of rules. It's a relationship with God himself. So do you know God? Do you have an ongoing daily relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit and listen to him regularly? I'm not asking you if you come to church. I'm asking you if you know 
God. Because when we value rule keeping over a relationship with God, ultimately we end up focusing more on external morality rather than internal piety. We follow the letter of the law without following the spirit of the law, just like the Pharisees did. You see, every time Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath, instead of the Pharisees rejoicing that God was making the old things new and he was healing and fixing broken things and he was restoring lost lives They just got mad about Jesus working on the Sabbath and breaking their rules. So let's not be so concerned about people breaking our rules and opinions and traditions that we miss the heart of God himself. The Pharisees valued preservation over pursuit and rule keeping over relationship. And lastly, they valued passing judgment over giving grace. Passing judgment over giving grace. I've got bad news for you this morning. You're a sinner. To which most of you, I hope, would say, yeah. I probably don't have to work very hard this morning to convince you that you are a sinner. Because you know that you're not perfect. You know this. We all know this. I am a sinner. You are a sinner. John, 1 John 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means you. And we know that we're sinners. And yet most of us still look around at other people and say, well, I'm not that bad. (laughs) Heard about two twin brothers lived in a town and, and they were both wealthy and they were both wicked, awful men. One day, one of them dies. And so the other brother goes up to the pastor of the largest church in town and says, I want you to preach my brother's funeral and I'm prepared to give your church a million dollars if you do. But here's the catch. You only get the million dollars if you tell all the townspeople that my brother was a saint. Well, you know, that put the pastor in a real pickle because the church needs the money on the one hand, but on the other hand, he doesn't want to compromise his moral integrity. So the day of the funeral comes and the pastor stands up and he says, everybody knows that this man in front of me was a wicked, wretched, lying, cheating, drunk. He was an absolute scoundrel. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. (laughs) And when we start comparing our sins to the sins of those people that we think we see around us, that's when we get ourselves in trouble. And that's what the Pharisees did. They kind of assumed they were better than everybody else. In contrast, look at what one reformed Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. He said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Notice, Paul doesn't say, I was the worst. He's not just referring to his days where he was a Pharisee persecuting the church and was responsible for the first Christian martyrdom. He's not just talking about that. He says, present tense, I am the worst. A true gospel mindset always says, the worst sinner that I know is me. The worst sinner I know is me. Because here's the deal. I don't know your hearts this morning, but I know mine. And left on my own, my heart is wicked. It's easier to see the faults 
in other people. It's easier to do that than to see them in ourselves. But if you don't recognize your own sin, first and foremost, then Christ's gift to you on the cross is not going to seem all that great. won't mean all that much to you. And you'll end up passing judgment on others instead of giving grace. Because grace isn't all that good if you don't think you're all that bad. I've heard a lot of people say that, you know, they think if they're just good enough, then they can earn their way to heaven. They can achieve eternal life, that they can get on God's good side. Unfortunately, we hear that even in the church. People think that they can earn their way to heaven. Well, you can't. (laughs) Scripture says multiple times that you are dead in your sins. You are dead. There's no way you can be good enough to atone for your sin. You are dead. And you don't walk up to a dead person in a casket and say, wow, you should start exercising. Get a gym membership, something, maybe go on a diet. You need some help. (laughs) Because there's not much that person can do about being dead. And church, we don't need a reformation. We don't need a resuscitation. We need a resurrection. Because on our own, we are dead in our sins. And until we recognize how dead and lost in our sins we all are, and that each and every one of us is just a beggar at the door of God's mercy, hopeless without the grace of Jesus Christ, then we'll be quicker to judgment than to grace, and we'll be quicker to criticism than to mercy. See, the Pharisees thought they didn't need grace. They thought they had it all together. So they looked down on the tax collectors and the sinners, and they lacked concern for the hurts of the broken, and they showed no mercy for the pain of the lost. They were just full of a righteous burning anger. I don't know if you've noticed, but if you drive east on 40, past the grab-and-go, you'll notice a billboard there for Planet Fitness. And it says, Planet Fitness, the original judgment-free zone. That's their motto. The judgment-free zone. People in our world are looking for a place to belong. A community where they don't have to be afraid. A place where they can just come as you are. People shouldn't have to find that at a gym. They should find it in the church. People shouldn't find more grace in working out than they do in worship. Because we are all sinners in need of mercy at the foot of the cross. So let's be a church where we've got grace on tap. And what haunts me about texts like this was that the people Jesus hung out with, the people that flocked to Jesus and loved to be around him and hear what he had to say, they were the outcasts. They were the dirty people, the people that nobody else wanted to be around. And looking out here at our church this morning, I see a whole lot of people who look like me. Where are they, church? They're out there. Those empty seats in the rows around you, they're just waiting to be filled. They're out there waiting for you to go get them. What if this church looked like the people that Jesus attracted It breaks my heart when we hear people say that they came to Plainfield Christian Church and nobody talked to them, that nobody said hi to them. It happens. How does that happen in a church of 2,000 people here on a Sunday morning? 
this God that we follow is a God who crosses boundaries. He's a God who goes and he walks across the room and he makes the first move to reach the lost. Will you be that kind of a person? Because this God who crosses boundaries, look, look at our good shepherd in this story that Jesus tells, Luke 15, verses 3 through 7. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. As Christians, we are called to do the kinds of things that God does. So let's look at what God does here in this story. Three quick things that God does and that we are called to do as a result. First, God leaves the flock. He leaves the flock. Now the Pharisees, they were focused on life inside the flock. Where they were safe, they had food, they had friends, they were taken care of, it was comfortable and familiar. But God leaves the flock to look for the lost sheep. And sheep get lost. We know this, right? We've heard all the stories about how dumb and stupid sheep are. They nibble their way into lostness. They're safe with all their friends. And then, oh, look, a, a patch of green grass. <laughs> oh, look, more grass. <laughs> oh, look, more grass. And little by little, distraction after distraction, they're lost. Let's be honest. We know how this feels, don't we? We've done this before. A day without prayer here. A week without reading your Bible here. A month without coming to church here. And pretty soon, we're long gone but the shepherd leaves the flock and he's constantly on the move to find us. And all too often, I'm not sure that God's church does a great job of reflecting the love of God that is constantly moving and advancing and pursuing the lost. When Jesus gives his apostles their final instructions before he ascends into heaven and leaves earth, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, boys, I'm headed out. Make sure that when I go, you get yourselves a good set of bylaws. Write them down. Be precise. You don't want to get in legal trouble. Then go get yourself a piece of real estate. Remember, location, location, location. And build yourself a nice building. Make sure it's comfortable. Make the children's area secure so people can feel at home. Make sure the roof doesn't leak. No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, go. Get out of here. What are you doing standing around? Go tell the whole world about me. And so after the Gospels, the book of Acts is the story of this podunk ragtag band of country bumpkins who take God's love to the whole world. What if that was us? Because if we, we serve a God who leaves the flock, he leaves the flock, and secondly, he seeks the lost. He seeks the lost. This is a God who's leaving the flock and he's taking his salvation across the tracks. He's relentlessly pursuing the whole world. He's looking for lost sheep and lost coins and prodigal sons and beggars to bring into his banquet. Jesus is on the road looking for sinners here in Plainfield, in Avon, in Hendricks County. And if we're not on the road reaching sinners with him, then I'm not sure we're with Jesus. Will you do whatever it takes to reach the lost? I know you know who they are, because God will do whatever it takes. He'll do anything short of sin to bring the lost sheep back to him, and so should we. 2 Peter 3.9 says, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone 
to come to repentance. Jesus leaves the flock, he seeks the lost, and finally he celebrates the found. When sinners respond to the invitation of Jesus, the Pharisees may grumble, but heaven rejoices. I read a song this week, it's an old song by Larry Bryant about the happiest days of heaven. Let me just read it to you real quick. When the Model T first hit the street, it didn't bring all heaven to its feet. And when the first computer was born, they didn't blow old Gabriel's horn. There's only one thing that we're sure about that can make those angels jump and shout. It's when a sinner makes the Lord his choice. That's when the angels rejoice. Now, heaven doesn't strike up a band for any old occasion at hand. It's got to be a special thing to make those angels smile and sing. Now, when the United States became a nation, there was no angelic celebration. But when one lost sinner comes back home, they jump for joy around the throne. Jesus leaves the flock. He seeks the lost. And he celebrates the found. More on that next week. Ultimately, We're cured from being accidental Pharisees when we remember our story. And our story is this. We were lost, hopelessly, helplessly, utterly sinful, dead. But Jesus found us. And the good shepherd threw us up on his shoulder and he brought us home. And he did that when he put the cross up on his shoulder and he carried it to Calvary. John said, excuse me, Jesus said in John 10, 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And pretty soon we're going to come to a time of communion. And what we do, we're going to lay down our pride. We're going to lay down our pretense. We're going to lay down our illusions that all our opinions and traditions are right. We're going to lay down our misconceptions that we think we're less sinful than the people around us. We're going to quit being Pharisees. And we're going to admit that we're all sinners in need of grace. And all we can do is thank God for the life that we found in the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Because my story is this. I was utterly sinful. But now in Jesus, I am fully found. Will you pray with me? Good shepherd, thank you for coming to find us. When we were helpless to make our way home on our own. Now send us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.